Our second Bible reading is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them, until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do leave your service program open so we can keep looking at that passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Lord Jesus, we want to claim that promise this morning. Please give us minds that easily understand your word and hearts that gladly receive it. Do these things, we pray, so that you may bring glory to the Father. Amen. You may have heard this saying before, the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. It's attributed to the great Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon, and he certainly said it in a sermon in the year 1900, but he may have been quoting an existing proverb, the same sun softens the wax, hardens the clay. There's another similar, another saying that's similar. The same boiling water that softens the potato, hardens the egg. No one knows who said that one first. The point of both proverbs is that the same stimulus can produce opposite reactions, opposite outcomes. 
And you can apply that insight in various ways. Bullying, for example, might harden one girl so she becomes a bully herself. It might soften another girl. The experience of being bullied so that she always sticks up for people who are badly treated. The same stimulus, bullying, can produce different long-term outcomes. In today's Bible passage, the stimulus is the star. As we'll see, the star is a sign connected to Jesus' birth. And that sign produces very different long-term outcomes in the lives of the people in this passage. It softens some, it hardens others. Now, the sign of the star was unique. Speaking personally, I don't ever expect to see a star like it. But signs in the Bible are an example of divine revelation. Signs reveal something of God's purposes in the world. And I do expect, I certainly expect, to receive divine revelation. I expect to receive it every time I open God's word, the Bible. That's where God reveals his character and his purposes. The Bible is divine revelation from the first word to the last. And just like the star in this passage, the Bible softens some and hardens others. One person receives it with joy and can't get enough of it. Another says, this isn't for me. The more I hear, the less I like. And you might think, if you're a Christian here today, that you're in the soft group, and that's the end of the matter. You might want to say to me, Preacher, say no more. I already know God's word softens me. But what we'll find in this passage is that the people softened by the sign of the star aren't the people you'd expect to be softened by it. And the people hardened by the star are actually the people who thought they were close to God. So there's a warning here for people who think they're in the soft group, who assume they're in the soft group. There's a warning for people who regularly attend church and assume their hearts are soft toward God's word. We can't make that assumption based on where we're sitting. It's only by looking at our lives that we see whether our hearts are like wax in response to the sunlight of God's word, or instead, like clay. There are two parts to the rest of the sermon. The first is a sign accepted. A sign accepted. Please look down with me to verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We'll think more about who these Magi were in a moment, but we can already tell one thing about them from those verses I've just read. They were eager to worship the king of the Jews. They came from the east all the way to Jerusalem to worship him. And if you look at a map of the ancient world, you might have one in, in the back of your Bible, you'll see that east of Jerusalem, east of Israel, there's nothing but desert for hundreds of miles. 
one of the closest major population centers east of Jerusalem, was Babylon. It's possible the Magi came from even further away than Babylon. We don't know where exactly they came from, but if they set out from Babylon, the closest major population center east of Israel, they faced a journey of 800 miles. I, I don't know, is there anyone from Texas here today? There is. There is one person here from Texas. Well, you know, you may not find 800 miles very impressive, Catherine, being from Texas, but non-Texans, like all the rest of us, we find an 800-mile journey, probably by camel, hugely impressive. One Bible commentary estimates that the Magi could have averaged 20 miles per day, which means the 800-mile journey would have required 40 travel days. Add in a week or so in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and the round trip, the whole Star Trek, if you will, would have taken about three months. And that underlines the eagerness of these magi to worship Jesus. Three months is a big chunk of time. It's a quarter of a year. Those were months when the Magi could have been making progress with all their Magi projects back in Babylon, ticking things off their Magi to-do lists. But instead, they came to Jerusalem to worship the newborn King of the Jews. So we've seen that the Magi had soft, impressionable hearts. Their hearts were moved by the revelation they received from God. But what was this Revelation. What can we tell about the sign of the star from the few verses in which it's mentioned? The best explanation I've come across is that one of the things the Magi did was astrology, and astrologers tried to interpret the night sky. They looked for meaning in the changing arrangement of the stars. If a certain planet, for example, rose in a certain sector of the sky, that would have such and such a meaning. If another planet appeared nearby, that would add an extra layer of meaning. At the time of Jesus' birth, the wise men saw something out of the ordinary in the night sky. And they got their star interpretation handbook down from the shelf, and what they saw in the sky led them to scribble down king and birth and Israel. The information they observed in the night sky told them that a king had been born in Israel. That would have been meaningful to them because the Magi probably knew that the Jewish people were expecting a standout king. They may well have been familiar with the book of Daniel. Daniel spent his whole life working in the East, his whole working life was in the east, in Babylon and in Persia. And in the book of Daniel, the Magi would have read about the Son of Man, a human being who seems to be more than just a human being. Daniel says that this Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7 says of the Son of Man, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and 
Men of every language worshipped him. Worshipped him. Daniel 7 says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the kind of king whose birth gets Magi travelling 800 miles across the Arabian desert to Israel. But we're not finished with the star yet. In verse 9, the star begins to provide precision guidance. Verse 9 says, After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. So for this final part of the journey, the five miles from Jerusalem, five or six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the star seems to become a sort of free-floating, luminous object that the wise men follow until it directs them to one particular house. The star doesn't seem to have been free-floating until then, because if it had been, they wouldn't have needed to stop in Jerusalem and ask for directions, which is what they do back in verse 2. So one possible reconstruction is that when the wise men begin their journey uh, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, so once they've arrived in Israel, they're in Jerusalem asking for directions, where is this king to be born? And they're told he's to be born in Bethlehem. One reconstruction is at that moment in time, they look up at the familiar star that inspired them to travel to Israel, and suddenly that star becomes a floating light that leads them to the very home they want to get to. There can be no doubt that verse 9 is describing a supernatural phenomenon. And sometimes our modern Western brains find that sort of thing hard to deal with, even as Christians. Our brains are influenced by a steady drip drip, drip of materialism. We hear all around us in our rather secular culture. Materialism is the view that everything is matter, operating according to predictable physical laws. And after absorbing that worldview for much of our lives, we can stumble over a detail like this moving star. But materialism is not the explanation of life, the universe, and everything. The universe was created by God, the God of the Bible, who exists outside time and space. He is perfectly entitled to meddle with his own system for his own purposes. The South African Bible teacher Mervyn Eloff puts it like this, Any problem with the star or with the miraculous aspects of the story it's really just a problem with having a God who is too small. If God is big enough to create the world, and if God can become man in Jesus Christ, then any miracle is possible for God. End quote. A supernatural guiding object in the night sky fits the Christian framework, because we have a supernatural God. So we shouldn't let the drip, drip, drip of materialism make us feel uncomfortable about this star. One thing is abundantly clear, the Magi themselves didn't have a problem with the star. 
Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy there in verse 10. And it's the star itself that brings them that joy. They haven't gone into the house yet to see the baby. Maybe they're rejoicing because the star has stopped. Their long journey is finally over. But verse 10 simply says, when they saw the star. It doesn't say when they saw the star stopping. And so the boiling joy there in verse 10 is probably the Magi's reaction at the very moment when the star switches from astrological information stuck in the night sky to a guiding light, a moving light. And if so, they're, they're rejoicing in response to that very direct and personal divine revelation. They're rejoicing at God's willingness to lead them and guide them and help them on their way in this world. The stimulus of divine revelation softens the hearts of these magi once again. And when these soft-hearted magi come into the presence of Jesus, what do they do? Verse 11, after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Those who gladly receive divine revelation will worship Jesus, because that's what divine revelation is for. When God reveals his character and his purposes and his deeds in human history, his aim is to lead people to Jesus, just like the star led the Magi to Jesus in Bethlehem. Divine revelation in the Bible shows us our need for our Saviour. It records all of God's promises to do with that Saviour. And it speaks of his arrival, his life, his death on the cross for our sake, and his resurrection from the dead. God has lovingly spoken in Scripture because he's lovingly provided a saviour for us. And if you're listening today as someone who's not yet trusting in Jesus, perhaps listening to this sermon online, and you're, you're not yet a Christian, well, please keep listening. Give God your ears. Listen eagerly with your mind engaged and your heart engaged. And as you listen, what you hear may start to make more and more sense to you. Everything may start to fall into place and you'll be led to Jesus for all the good things he offers, the forgiveness of all your wrongdoing, the lifting of your guilt away from your shoulders, eternal life, fellowship with other believers, and a relationship with God the Father and Jesus his Son and God the Holy Spirit that goes on forever. If you're not yet a Christian, keep listening. At the end of the passage in verse 12, we find the Magi, true to form, responding to divine revelation rightly with soft hearts. God warns them in a dream, divine revelation, not to return to King Herod, and they listen. They listen to the warning. Unlike Pilate, later in Matthew's Gospel, who receives divine revelation via his wife's dream, 
and doesn't listen as he should. These magi do. They listen to the warning and take the scenic route home, avoiding Jerusalem this time, avoiding King Herod. Now, before we move on to the second part of the sermon, which will be briefer than this first part, we need to spend a little more time thinking about who the Magi were. We've already seen that astrology would have featured prominently on their LinkedIn profiles, and magic would also have been mentioned on their profiles. Our word magic is connected to the Greek word magoi, as you can hear. Magi were the magicians of the ancient world. And for that reason, Matthew's earliest readers would have been astonished to see Magi receiving revelation from God and responding so well to it. The very idea of Magi would have sent shivers down the spines of the earliest readers of Matthew's gospel. Elsewhere in the Bible, magicians are condemned. Listen, for example, to these verses from Deuteronomy 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who practices sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. From the point of view of Matthew's earliest readers, who would have been mainly Jewish people, God's chosen people, these non-Jewish magi were the unlikeliest worshippers of the Messiah imaginable. The unlikeliest recipients of divine revelation imaginable. And yet they did receive revelation from God, what grace he shows. And that revelation softened their hearts. Let's now press on to the second part of the sermon, a sign rejected. A sign rejected. When the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they excitedly ask people that question in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. But their excitement doesn't meet with equal excitement. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. It gets worse. In verse 8, when Herod tells the Magi that the newborn king they're seeking, that they're seeking must have been born in Bethlehem, He also says, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. He's speaking falsely. He wants to know where the child is so he can have him killed. Later in chapter 2, after Herod realizes the Magi have outflanked him, he sends soldiers to Bethlehem. Chapter 2, verse 16 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It says, Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. What a horrifying example of a human heart being hardened 
by divine revelation. Due to the star, the Magi had described the child they were looking for as he who has been born king of the Jews. This child was king already. Herod saw the child as a rival to be eliminated instead of God's ruler to be adored. But it's not just Herod whose heart is hardened in response to the divine revelation given to the Magi. The chief priests and scribes mentioned in verse 4, they know that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They connect the divine revelation of the star with existing divine revelation in Scripture. They make that connection, and yet they stay put in Jerusalem. They don't go five or six miles down the road to Bethlehem to worship the long-awaited Messiah. In one of his sermons, Augustine, the great 4th century Christian leader, describes those priests and scribes as milestones that point out the way, but walk not. Milestones that point out the way, but walk not. They stay where they are in Jerusalem. They would have considered themselves close to God. Chief priests in Jerusalem, the site of God's temple, they would have considered themselves closer to God than everyone else on the face of the earth. But they reacted to divine revelation with hard-heartedness. They stayed where they were instead of going to worship Jesus. And sad to say, it's not just Herod, it's not just the chief priests and the scribes, Verse 3 says, all Jerusalem is troubled along with King Herod. Jerusalem's reaction to Jesus as a baby is echoed a generation later by Jerusalem's reaction to Jesus as a grown man. As Jesus himself says shortly before his death on the cross, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone no scent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Those Jerusalemites in 33 AD, like the Jerusalemites at the time of Jesus' birth, were the natural insiders who should have been worshipping the newborn Messiah, but there, and the grown Messiah, but their hearts were hardened. Praise God, there were Jewish believers in Jesus as God's promised Messiah at the time of his birth and at the time of his death and resurrection. All of his first disciples were Jewish all of the earliest church members were Jewish, but the point here stands. Proximity to divine revelation, proximity to divine revelation, doesn't necessarily bring about a right reaction to it. Being close to God's word doesn't mean you'll respond with a soft heart. 
It seems these Jerusalemites were satisfied with the status quo, and they were troubled when divine revelation interfered with it. That's what divine revelation so often does. God wants to give us newness of life and spiritual transformation. There's a lot of interfering with the status quo involved in newness of life and spiritual transformation. We need to have hearts willing to receive that loving divine interference. So the application for us of this Bible passage isn't that we should read the Bible as often as possible, although that's a very good thing to do, and I hope we're doing it. The application isn't that we should come to church regularly to hear God's word read and preached, although that's a very good thing to do, and we ought to be doing it. No, the application of today's passage is that when we read God's word, when we hear it preached, we should respond with a soft heart and not a hard one. We should plead with God to help us respond rightly to his word, his revelation of himself and his purposes and his deeds. I, When I look in my own heart, I see a lot of that instinctive reaction that the Jerusalemites had at the time of the birth of Jesus, that desire to hold on to the status quo instead of letting God's word transform me. But we can trust Jesus, our King, our Shepherd, as he's described in verse 6. We can trust him because of his love for us. He wants good change for us. He loves us. His love was shown in the incarnation that we're reading about in this passage. God come down into our world as a baby. Listen to these words from the preacher John Piper about the incarnation. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss. He needed a, a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the pain could be fully felt. The point of those words is that Jesus was born with his future death on the cross in view. He was born so that later he could receive the punishment from God that he didn't personally deserve in our place for our sake, bearing our sins, being punished for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be punished for them. He is a loving king, a loving shepherd, 
did that for us so that we could be with him forever, enjoying him and his new creation. When we hear his word, when we read his word, we can trust it. It is given to us lovingly. And so with God's help, let's respond to it with soft hearts. The same sun that softens the clay, softens the wax, hardens the clay. Let's pray for God to give us hearts like wax. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we do recognise inside ourselves hearts that are naturally hard, hearts that naturally want to cling to the status quo and get troubled when your word seems to interfere with our status quo. We pray, Father, we plead with you that by your Spirit you would soften our hearts to your revelation. By your Spirit would we receive your word as gladly as the Magi received revelation from you. Help us, we pray. And as we receive your word with soft hearts, we pray that you would lead us and guide us just as you led the Magi. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.